0: You're listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2. We're going to close out our study of the Christmas story today by looking at verses 13 through 23. If you picked up a bulletin today, I've already had several people point out the fact that there is no points today in the sermon. It is indeed a pointless sermon, I'm afraid, <laughs> and um, so you can make of that what you would like. In all seriousness, I, 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 don't really, I don't really have a formal outline today. I jotted this down on a post-it note if for you pragmatists who have to have something to write down. Uh, the flight to Egypt, verses 13 through 15, the slaughter at Bethlehem verses 16 through 18 and the return to Nazareth, verses 19 through 23. So perhaps this will help me and help you as we uh, look at this text together. Uh, One of the reasons that we we love Christmas is the story part of it. Uh, The story is such. filled with such beauty and wonder and and mystery uh, and drama, and we love to hear it again and again. Uh, How the angels spoke to Mary and Joseph, uh, the the miraculous conception, the the virgin birth, uh, the the empty end, the birth in a manger, the visit of the shepherds, the supernatural star, the the mysterious guests from out of town, the wise men. And it's such a great story, and and you see God's hand in all of it, His sovereignty and, and His providence. There are also parts of the story that are not so great, Uh, stories that kind of reveal a a dark side of of Christmas, Um, because we don't typically talk about, uh, you know, a a dark uh, night in a small village in Palestine where this young girl gives birth in the most unsanitary conditions imaginable, uh, with animals and feces and all around in, in a stable. We don't really sing songs about that part um that's not included and and we mentioned a little bit of this on at the christmas eve service but we don't often talk about the gross indifference of the religious leaders uh at the birth of jesus uh who who knew the prophecies full well and yet when they hear that these things may be coming together that god shone light for them to see uh, about the coming of jesus there's such apathy and indifference um and then there's the part of the Christmas story that no one really ever talks about. And, and you don't ever see this part of the story portrayed in any kind of Christmas nativity or, uh, or any kind of story. And it's the, it's the text that we're going to read today. It's, it's uh, something uh, very terrible uh, that takes place in our, in, in, uh, surrounding the birth of Christ. We read about it in verse 13. Now when they, speaking of the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. He became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region. Who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Father, please, uh, we know that you live in us, that the fullness of the Spirit, your Spirit, lives in us, Lord, and we are thankful for that. And we pray that you would be near, even nearer to us now, if possible, uh, as we give ourselves to your Word. And so speak to our hearts, Lord, what we need to hear today to be fed, to be strengthened, encouraged, convicted, and ultimately changed to be more like Christ. I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If we piece together the the story between Matthew and Luke... Uh, kind of a timeline we we would uh, come up with this uh, a timeline of events beginning with uh, Joseph and Mary's journey to Bethlehem and then uh, of course while they're there Luke chapter 2 Jesus is born shepherds visit them uh, from uh, from that area they come to see him uh, Luke chapter 2 verse 21 tells us that a week later they, they, had, they went and they had Jesus circumcised and officially named according to uh, the law, the requirements of the Old Testament law. And then a few weeks later after that, um, a visit to Jerusalem takes place for uh, Mary's purification. This is Luke chapter 2 verse 22 and following. Uh, part, again, of the Old Testament law. And you may remember, while they were there in Jerusalem at the temple, they're met by Simeon, uh, who, whose eyes were open to recognize uh, Jesus as the Messiah. And he had these words uh, to prophesy about Jesus. And Simeon uh, blessed them, according to Luke 2.34, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed then they returned to bethlehem and found apparently a house in which they could stay in and we know this because the wise men the visit of the wise men occurred sometime after this verse 11 says that they found baby jesus in a house and uh, we can only imagine that scene, you know, where the wise men come and, and or the magi, the, 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 uh, they come and, and you picture the scene of the, this young Jewish couple and uh, they're sitting around with, uh, with the wise men, these strange characters. They're perhaps comparing notes about all that, what has led them there. And Mary and Joseph comparing notes from the Old Testament about all of these things, trying to understand the good news of the gospel. Uh, of Christ coming. It's at this point where Matthew picks up the story again, verse 13. Now, when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about the search for the child to destroy him. Now, whatever we pictured in our mind about this young couple enjoying this precious baby and all the things that come along with that, everything comes to a, a sudden stop. Uh, within a day or two, perhaps, of, of the wise men, the, the visit, this, this scene is disrupted, and, and the wise men are headed out of town, and they're no doubt taking the back roads because Herod is torqued, and if he finds them, he's going to kill them. They cannot go back the same way they came. And so they're headed out of town. And the sweet little Jewish couple with this little baby Jesus now are on the run themselves. They're awakened by, again, a dream that an angel speaks to Joseph and says, flee, flee now, go tonight. It's as if the sword that Simeon prophesied about that was going to come Upon your hearts is already coming upon them. It's already piercing their souls. And so we're reminded again, when I I read this, when when Christ, the King, came into the world, no one was left untouched. No one was left untouched unscathed by all of this. Everyone was challenged by his kingship. No one would stay the same. Their lives are not the same having encountered Christ. Ferguson explains it so well. He writes, the wise men and the parents shared one thing in common. Knowing Jesus means taking up the cross and following him. That yes, there had been a price to pay for the wise men to To make that long journey and to find Jesus. But now, having found Him, having believed in Him, having worshipped Him, there's a different kind of cost. They can't even go back the same way they came for fear of their lives. And for Mary and Joseph, life would never be the same. All the thoughts about settling down on a little corner lot with a white picket fence and life is going to be happily ever after now that having Jesus into your life. No, it's not that at all. It's get up in the middle of the night and flee for your life. The shadow of the cross that's going to fall on Christ is already falling on them too. And to all who follow Christ, enticing as it would be to end the Christmas story and it is enticing with baby Jesus lying in a manger and no crying he makes and singing silent nights in just bliss and all these things and then going home. This is not the reality. It's not the reality at all. It's not the reality for them and it isn't the reality for those who Seek to follow Christ. Simeon had spoke of this opposition, this sword, that that there would be a cost to receiving Christ. Even a sword that would pierce their own soul. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Matthew instead shares this, he shares this very vivid, this horrific story to remind us of this sword. And this cost of the opposition, the struggle, the battle that, it, that accompanies the coming of Jesus into our lives. A couple of weeks ago or so, uh, Dr. Presley was here from the seminary, preached on Revelation chapter 12, uh, which gives uh, perhaps a behind-the-scenes kind of look of the birth of Jesus, maybe a view from heaven side of things, if you will. And, and it reminds us that Satan also was present at the birth of Christ. We talk about all those who are present, angels and shepherds and all these wonderful characters. Satan was also there. In fact, he's pictured. Revelation 12, verse 4, speaks of him as a dragon crouching before Mary, giving birth, waiting to devour the baby. I've seen a lot of nativity scenes, but I've never seen one that had a dragon hovering over. And he was there. And Revelation 12, 17 says that when the woman and her child escaped, that the dragon became furious with the, the woman. Revelation 12, 17. And he went out to make war on the rest of her offspring. That is, those who follow Christ. His church. Satan is at war with Christ and his church. He's at war with you. Believer. Hopefully this is evident to you. Hopefully you feel something of this in your life. And sometimes it's very discouraging. Sometimes it feels like Satan is winning. that The dragon is winning the war. Christians around the world suffering attack and harassment. Uh, uh, Non-Christians whom you're praying for, who you want to see come to Christ, still remain blind to the message. And then there are Satan's accusations and assaults on our own hearts and lives daily, with un- temptations to, to not believe, temptations to, to disobedience to God. Jesus would later say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, "I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it." And we should rejoice in that, shouldn't we, church? I mean that, that's his promise. That the gates of hell will not ultimately be successful. But we should not be fooled that Satan will not try. And that somehow that this is, this is not going to be reality. That there will not be any opposition in following Christ. That there will not be any cost to following Him. That the shadow of the cross is not going to fall on us at all. And Herod's murder of these little boys tells us how vicious his pursuit is. Herod is a, a long line of pawns that Satan has used, is using to oppose Christ. We talked a little bit about this Christmas Eve. King Herod, like many of the rulers of his day, was a paranoid ruler, so afraid someone was going to usurp his, his power, his throne, and, and he lived in constant fear, and he did whatever means that it took uh, to protect his throne. He had a very popular brother-in-law who was appointed high priest, who started to worry him in his popularity. So here's, here's an example. And he, he, he just couldn't execute the guy because he was so popular with the people. So he staged a little swimming party at the Jordan River. And he had some guys in there horse playing around and what appeared to be just kind of guys having fun, wrestling and dunking one another. Well, let's just say the brother-in-law got dunked a little bit too long. He killed him. And then he provided this magnificent funeral and pretended to weep about it. Following that, Herod had his own sister killed, her mother, three of his own sons, uh, for fear that they would take his own soul. Caesar Augustus uh, once remarked this, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. And so Herod is a a picture of a sinful, depraved man, this murderer, no regard to life or for God. Matthew tells us in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard about the birth of Jesus, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And and again, that troubled means greatly agitated. He He was mad. The birth of the king of the Jews infuriated him and he was fearful of what it might be. And you remember, he told the wise men, you go and make search for Jesus in Bethlehem, and when you find him, let me know so that I can go to him and what? Worship him too. Remember he said that, verse 8? Of course, he had no intention of worshiping Jesus. He wanted to find him so he could kill him. So when the wise men didn't come back, he's, verse 16, he's, exceed, he's furious. He's, he's exceedingly angry. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Can you picture that scene? Roman soldiers going house to house taking baby boys from their mother's arms taking their sword and putting them to death this is what matthew tells us happened in bethlehem because of the rage of this man the sinfulness of this man it makes matthew think back to the old testament he mentions a rachel there who I think it's symbolic of all the mothers of, of Israel. And in a town that he mentions called Ramah, which was the place where the Israelites were gathered together and shipped off into exile to Babylon. And so all these mothers are, are there at Rama and they're crying because they're having their children snatched from them and they're taken away into, into, into exile, perhaps never to see them again. And so Rachel is pictured as the mother of Israel and she's weeping as she sees her family taken away into captivity because of sin. And, and Matthew sees the, the slaughter of Bethlehem's babies here as if he sees Rachel beginning to weep all over again. The weeping is, is over the reality and the tragedy, and the power of sin. That's why it's no accident Matthew shows us, I think, this evil arrayed against the Lord Jesus so early in his gospel. It comes from the very beginning. At the very beginning, even in the birth narrative, the Christmas story, it's so important because you, you cannot understand why Jesus came into the world, what made the incarnation of God the Son so vitally necessary to us, unless you understand the depth of sin and evil which he came to defeat. The story of the gospel begins with human sin, with violence raging against the the, the, the Prince of Peace. This is the world into which Jesus came. This is the world in which our Savior came, and it reminds us of how desperately we need Him. And the truth is, you and I are evil and sinful too. And your sin and my sin, we may not manifest it in horrible ways as it did in Herod's life, but it's still very present in us, and it's a terrible thing, an ugly thing. And one's own sin is the ugliest of all. To recognize that, to, to, to see the, the, the depth of the sin that's in you. And this is the first step in understanding the gospel, you see. It's the first step in understanding the beauty of all of this. Robert Rayburn puts it so eloquently. He writes, the gospel does not begin in comfort and ease. It begins in dismay. It begins with the urgent message in the middle of the night to get up and flee for Herod is seeking the life of, of the, the, the little boy. It begins in fear and, and disquiet and, and uncertainty. and the, the family flees. Perhaps they sold the, the gifts that the wise men brought to them to be able to fund the, the trip. What would become of them? They had received the, the good news of salvation from the angels. And now they are fleeing for their lives to Egypt. What a picture. So it is in the individual life, in, in, in Christian life. When new life be- begins to, to dawn on you, and you come to see the darkness, and you, you understand the depth of your need for Jesus and what he, what he did for you, you begin to see yourself as God really sees you as, as, as a sinner. Men are evil, needing to be rescued from, uh, from judgment, from, from sin the beauty of this Christmas story begins to light up. Do you see this? Do you know this? Only when you recognize these things can you understand the very good news that we're celebrating this Christmas. And the good news is is we're not left in our sins. Amen? That we are, we are not left defenseless against the powers of, of darkness, though they may rage against us, and they will, they are raging against us. Satan will not have the last word. What a glorious thought. Now, Matthew communicates this message through one word uh, that, he, that he uses several times, but verse 17, he uses the word fulfilled. You see the word? Fulfilled. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The word fulfilled reminds us that God has a redemptive plan in all of this. That God is still in charge. This is one of four prophecies that Matthew points to in chapter 2 to make his uh, point about fulfillment. The first one's verse 6, where Micah prophesies that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, There's another one in verse 15 from Hosea, who pointed that Jesus would come out of Egypt, which fulfills verses 19 through 23. Uh, There's one in this text, verse 17 and 18, from Jeremiah, reminding us of the The sorrow of sin and the children of Israel are being carted off to exile. And then one more, verse 23, Jesus would be from Nazareth, which is where Joseph moved his family after they came home from Egypt. See, there's a method to what Matthew is saying here and even more so a method to what God is up to in all of this. This is a part of his redeeming plan that has been in place from eternity past. Which not even all the evil powers of Satan can thwart. No matter what happens at the hands of evil men, we can be assured that Satan will not have the last word, God will have the last word. Christ will have the last word. The weeping, the lamentation of Rachel and these mothers at Bethlehem. And let's be honest, all of God's people over the years, the weeping, the lamentation, there is hope. God will keep His promise. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And here, at the birth of Jesus, Jesus coming into the world, a world that is riddled with sin and evil. Here's God's glorious answer, Matthew 1, She will bear a son, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. According to God's plan, all of this, this is what we're celebrating at Christmas. Christ has come to save us from our sin. It's not just in His birth, though, is it? Right? It's the whole package. It's in His death. The cross of Jesus Christ. You can glimpse it even here from the very beginning of, of of His life. This display of of God's love that will that will go to tremendous lengths to display it. Evil will not have the last word because sin and death and the devil were defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. They were defeated comprehensively where Christ bore our sins. He died in our place. He offered himself freely to do this. The devil was delighting in Christ's agony and his death on the cross, but he failed to realize this was his utter defeat and destruction. And then there's the resurrection of Jesus which settles our hearts and reminds us that though things are not the way they're supposed to be right now, they will not always be this way. Christ's victory over sin and death was declared by our Father, our Heavenly Father, in raising Jesus from the dead. And His resurrection is our assurance. It's our our hope. Paul later exclaimed in 1 Corinthians 15, Death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful news? John Piper wrote a a poem, a wonderful poem, called The Innkeeper. If you've never, you could probably look it up and find it online, I think, free uh, somewhere out there, but it so beautifully illustrates what's going on here. It's an imaginary poem, uh, so he's just imagining what might have happened, but it envisions the Lord Jesus Christ returning to Bethlehem two weeks before his crucifixion. And while he's in Bethlehem, he meets Jacob, the innkeeper, who had given shelter to Joseph and Mary in in the stable where Jesus was born. And Jacob, Jacob's two little boys, Ben and Joseph, and his wife, uh, Rachel, had been slaughtered by Herod's armies in in that, uh, that time period. Jacob had been wounded while protecting, trying to protect them. And he is lamenting in this poem. He's wondering why the Messiah has not come. Why why the Messiah had not come to save them? Jacob testifies this. He said, I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost for housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? He's talking to. Uh, Jesus, who's just a stranger to him at this point. There's, he says, they sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. And then Jesus speaks. He says, I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life. Then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I've come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head. Of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath. Your wife. And Ben and Joseph too. And give them back to you. With everything the world can store. And you will reign forevermore. Christ indeed will have the last word. Amen, church? The challenge is to believe this. It's just to keep believing this, and it is to live in light of this. Because we're still living, I hope that you understand and know this, we're living in times of war. In many ways, Joseph's life is an example, an illustration of this and how to do this. We see him recognizing the war that receiving Christ into his life has brought. It's not made things easier. It's made things more difficult. And we find him trusting in the Lord to lead him and to guide him, even though it it cost him. We see this in the closing verses, just... The paragraph when, but when Herod died, verse nineteen. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And notice, he's warned in another dream. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's that word fulfilled again. It's like the music of God's faithfulness and goodness that is just playing in the background of of their lives and our lives. And and I want you to hear that music this morning, church. I want you to hear everything that's going on in your life and in our world, the music of God's faithfulness and goodness playing in the background. But do not let it lull you to sleep for one moment. Though it it does not take away the hostility. It does not take away the spiritual war. It does not take away for your need and my need to be constantly aware of an enemy who would seek our defeat. It doesn't take away our need to constantly give ourselves to Christ, to die to self daily, to obey Him daily, to be diligent in our discipleship. What assurance we have as we do all of those things. That God will indeed have the last word. That he's good and faithful to care for us along the way. To follow Christ is to lay down our lives, but in doing so, we know that we will gain him, and we will gain him for all eternity. What a glorious thought. So what about you? Do you recognize something of this call in your life? Do you feel the battle? Are you engaged in this? pretending that it's not there is not helpful and it's even dangerous to your soul uh, because there's no coasting with Christ. There's no coasting in your Christian discipleship. These are realities. What we're reading here is a reality of what it means to follow Christ. Get up in the middle of the night. Flee for your life. Give yourself to Christ and His Word. Because all true believers live under the shadow of this cross. Are you? Are you submitting to Christ in obedience? Look, I've done woken a baby this morning. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for these amazing words that Matthew records for us, reminding of such truth. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to see. Help us not to get lax, and complacent. But to recognize the reality of these things. And in the midst of this, may we continually give ourselves to Christ to follow Him and obey Him no matter the cost. Help us to do that now, we pray in Jesus' name.